Epiphany, the season spanning between Christmas and Lent, is the encore to Christmas where following the Magi's lead, we look for the light of the world that has come among us. What a global moment for us to find light in the darkness. As we see so much tumbling down around us, the pain and destruction of COVID and the ripples of violent division in politics, the conditions are perfect for us to see how this deconstruction and reconstruction echo the rhythm of our faith. Deconstruction and reconstruction are the rhythm of faith. We also find that when we don't tend to this process, which honestly is hard to find time, energy, and patience for, we end up feeling spiritually homeless without a sense of belonging. This epiphany, we take the time to engage in collaborative deconstruction and reconstruction, meaning-making and practicing the love of Jesus by creating the conditions for our own epiphanies, ahas, and awakening. We're acknowledging how arrival isn't everything when it comes to our faith. Instead, we keep arriving in significant places to find that there's always a way further on that we follow, led by the light we thought we'd left behind. The Sawhouse staff has worked hard to curate community opportunities for your connection. Our Use at Home Epiphany Inspiration Kits, Watch Together from Home Epiphany Film Nights, Small Groups, After Worship Sunday Zoom Activities, and an epiphany sock and coat drive benefiting the clients of Kirkland Place Shelter. Then our time right now in worship each Sunday, our sermon time leads us through reclaiming words of faith many of us have avoided because of their theological use to hurt and manipulate. Heaven, hell, being saved, sin, evangelical, and the Bible as the word of God these conversations matter because theology matters. Just look around at what's happening in our world right now. All of these epiphany opportunities ask of us, are we here yet? How can we move on from the past to be present to a theology put into practice that grounds us in God in this current moment and fosters belonging deeply to each other? This is our journey for Epiphany 2021. This is the deconstruction and reconstruction we do together now. All right, Salt House. This morning I want to talk about the word evangelical. So I'll just do a gut check here. How do you feel when I say the word evangelical? And you might have a lot of associations with this word, uh, like perplexingly, this word has come to mean anti-LGBTQ or pro-Trump or anti-abortion or pro-NRA, even like pro-white supremacy. For many, entirely divorced from its original meaning, which is good news. But for thousands of years, this Greek term, euangelion or evangel, has literally meant good news. The good news of God in Jesus for all people. So like when the angel told the Bethlehem shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. It was evangelical. And when Jesus healed the sick and ate with outcasts and spoke truth to power and proclaimed that God's kingdom was with the poor and the left out, it was evangelical. And only recently does evangelical mean like a conservative American identity political tool for securing a voting base. 
Saul House is, in fact, a member of the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And they chose that word because we are a people that are shaped by God's inclusive, liberating, good, good news in Jesus. But my goodness, I am with you. Sometimes it is hard to even bear the name Christian these days because of the associations that go along with it that have just absolutely nothing to do with the Christ that we follow. So I feel you if when I say this word evangelical, you bristle. I'm with you. The meanings of words are fluid. They change. So what do we do with the word evangelical? I mean, we can use it as is. We can abandon it. Or we can reclaim it. And while this might be my most unpopular sermon yet, (laughs) I want to make a case this morning for reclaiming the word evangelical, because I think it's too important to let it get co-opted without a fight. So are we here yet? No. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let me know if I get close, okay? And I want to approach this topic in true evangelical fashion through a Bible study, which means I'm going to ask everyone at home to go grab a Bible, or you can crack it open uh, on your screen and just you know get a tab there too going if you want. Um, but we are going to be turning to the book of Acts chapter 8. Um, this is like one of my favorite stories, people. I love this story. Um, the, the book of Acts... Uh, it, is in the Christian scriptures, so you're going to want to go over here. Uh, It's in the New Testament. It's near the back, and this is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, previously in Luke, it's the story of the Jesus movement following his death and resurrection and how the Jesus followers shared his his news, and they because they just, it was too good to keep it to themselves. So um, is everyone there? Acts chapter 8, you with me? Okay. So this is a story about Philip, um, and he's a Jewish Jesus follower, and all the Jesus followers were Jewish at that time, which is going to be an important detail in just a minute. So here we go, Acts 8, let's do this. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the wilderness road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Philip started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. So first of all, I want you to appreciate how strange this is. God is sending Philip out into the desert without any other direction. From the get-go, we just get this sense for just what kind of wild goose chase the spirit is sending Philip on, right? He says, hey, go south out into the middle of nowhere. And Philip says, okay. And by holy coincidence, it's there that Philip sees this huge caravan. Um, Last summer, my family and I drove through Death Valley. It it would be like us seeing a presidential entourage just kind of randomly passing by there. And we learn a little bit about who was in this entourage. We learn that it's someone important, someone in charge of a lot of money, the treasury of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And we learn that he's a eunuch. 
And we don't have a lot of context for eunuchs in our culture. And so it's really important if we're going to hear good news in this text to understand what it meant to be a eunuch in biblical times. And I owe a ton to my friend, the Reverend Eric Mason, who has really helped me see this text differently. So there were three ways that males became eunuchs, uh, by birth or by choice, but most commonly, eunuchs were castrated against their will. And Eric Mason, he writes this, he says that um, uh, eunuchs in the ancient world were victims of violence, sexual exploitation, and social condemnation. Castration is violating, it assaults masculinity, and the ancient Greek or Latin speakers had various words to differentiate whether a male's testicles had been crushed or pounded, torn from the body or cut out of it. And this was often done to degrade men who had been conquered in war. This was a, a common thing. We even see um, examples of this in 2 Kings 20 and Isaiah 39, when Hezekiah's sons were captured, they were castrated, they were enslaved. Um, and the intent was to humiliate a weak Israelite king and establish Babylonian dominance. Um, in the ancient world, kings and queens, they often forced boys or men to become eunuchs in order to guard royalty and queens or harems or as sex slaves. And because they couldn't procreate, and they had no family in the sense of in-laws or children, they were less threatening to royalty. And uh, they were easily discarded because of that too. So there is a way in which in the ancient world, eunuchs either by force or by choice or by birth made up a third gender. And this was problematic to Hebrew culture um, in which a man was defined as one who makes children. That's how one lived on into the afterlife. That's how one uh, builds a nation, right? Uh, that's how one fulfills God's promise to be fruitful and to multiply. So in, the, in that world, where do eunuchs fit? And we see that the Ethiopian eunuch here is a complicated character. He's, um, he's a Gentile. Uh, he's foreign to Jerusalem, um, likely has no heirs. Um, likely made a eunuch by force, and in the eyes of Philip, uh, both his masculinity and his personhood would be in question. So there's a big difference in power here. And at the same time, uh, the eunuch is a court official of the Queen of Ethiopia and in charge of her entire treasury. That is a ton of power. So, you know, the, it's a complicated character. So, um, now, you just get, got a little background there, um, and let's read on to the next verse, um, figure out what he was doing in Jerusalem in the first place. It says, he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning home. So, he was going to Jerusalem on official business of the treasury, he was going to the temple, likely to give offerings on behalf of Candace. And Ethiopia and Israel, they had always had this unique relationship ever since King Solomon had this love affair with Queen, the Queen of Sheba. So it makes sense that now Queen Candace is sending offerings to the temple in Jerusalem. But what do we know about eunuchs and the temple? So now, 
Let's flip over to Deuteronomy 23. It is over here. It's at the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures, and it, uh, it lays out rules for the temple. So Deuteronomy 23.1 says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Um, first time you've ever heard a sermon on Deuteronomy 21. Congratulations. Uh, so now we're, let's flip over. We're going to get a little bit more context for this because it's um, repeated and elaborated on in Leviticus 21. So Leviticus 21 says, No one of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near one who is blind or lame, or one who has a mutate, mutilated face or limb too long, or one who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a blemish in his eyes or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. They basically give a list, is kind of the short list even, of those who are not allowed to step foot in the temple. So, are you getting a picture here? Um, the Ethiopian eunuch goes to worship at the temple. He travels all this way, but when he gets there at the temple, he can't even go in. It doesn't matter how much money he offers, he's excluded. He can't buy his inclusion. He can't even approach. He can't even draw near to offer food. He is completely on the outside. So can you imagine the kind of rejection, the kind of exclusion that he's feeling? And now he's going home after this experience. So uh, let's uh, flip back to Acts 28.28. It says, the Ethiopian eunuch is seated in his chariot, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So far in the story, um, like what directions does the Spirit give to Philip? Uh, get up, go to the wilderness road, um, Go over to this chariot, uh, join it. Seems as though God is positioning Philip without any explanation, positioning him for something. And think about for a moment, like the reservations that Philip might have if God would have given him all the details first, right? So likely Philip, um, like any kind of good Jewish man of his day, would have disgust for eunuchs would have stigmatized the eunuch as um, unclean, as been concerned about you know, being profaned um, by him. Philip and the eunuch are different in, in just uh, most ways. Uh, nationality, ethnicity, skin color, gender, sexuality, social status, economic status, languages, uh, religion. Um, they are other to each other in most ways. So what in the world is the spirit up to? Let's read on. So Philip ran up to it 
and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and to sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. And in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is cut off from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does this prophet say this? Is it about himself or is it about someone else? Hmm. This, this is where things really start to get interesting, Salthouse. Do you see it? You see what the eunuch sees in this text from Isaiah? What do you imagine is just like stirring within the eunuch as he reads about uh, the suffering servant of the Lord, which is what Isaiah is talking about here. When he reads, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. The suffering servant of the Lord knew what it was like to be treated unjustly, to be physically violated, to be humiliated. And he reads, who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? The suffering servant of the Lord like, has no children. And in the con- cultural context of ancient Israel, the suffering servant isn't a real man. The eunuch identifies deeply with the person that the prophet Isaiah is talking about, and he wants to know more about it. And he asks Philip, who happens to be at the right place at the right time? Who is he talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? Because it feels like he's talking directly about me. And I wonder what Philip will say here, you know? Like, will Philip be scandalized by this association made between the suffering servant of the Lord and the eunuch? The one who isn't even allowed in the temple of the Lord? Let's see what happens here. Acts 8, 35. Then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scriptures, he proclaimed to him the good news, the the euangelion, the evangel, about Jesus. So Philip's not scandalized. He sees what the Spirit of God is doing, orchestrating just like this impossible meeting between others. I think the good news that Philip proclaimed about Jesus was to lean into this eunuch's identification with Jesus. Yes, that's how Jesus suffered too. God who took on flesh, took on your flesh. But I imagine Philip didn't even stop here. I mean, I can see Philip saying, hold on, hold on, wait a second. You gotta hear what it says three chapters later, and then he flips over or scrolls down. It's probably scroll, scrolls down the scroll to Isaiah 56, 3 through 8, and then reads this passage to him. Do not let the foreigner joined to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. 
And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who who choose the things that please me and holds fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. Holy smokes. Do you think this was good news to the Ethiopian eunuch? This is the same passage that Jesus quotes when he clears the temple out, saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. I wonder if Philip shared that story with the eunuch too. He had to. The good news of Jesus is always including the unincluded. There is always this subversive gospel strain throughout the entirety of the scripture that challenges and corrects the excluding aspects of religion. It's there. It's there. It's good news. But we need like we need an epiphany to see it, right? So what happens next? We're ready to finish the story, okay? Acts 8, 36 and 40. Follow along. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch, he initiates, listen, the eunuch said, look, here's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? Isn't that a gorgeous question? And he commands the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news, the Evangelion, (laughs) to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, let me ask some questions about Philip's strategy for evangelism. Uh, Did you get the feeling like Philip is following a formula? Like four spiritual laws, seven steps to being saved? Is Philip even concerned about an end result? I mean, like praying a sinner's prayer or joining church membership? Uh, Is Philip being coercive or manipulative? Is he trying to close the deal on somebody? No, I mean, baptism isn't even Philip's idea. (laughs) The answer to each of these is just an obvious no. So what is evangelizing, what is good newsing look like for Philip other than a way of life that is marked by listening to and following the Spirit's wild invitations. A way of life that's marked by moving out from places of power and privilege. Being led even by the desire of the other. Asking genuinely curious questions. 
seeing and naming another's connection with Jesus and saying yes to the inclusion of God. I mean, I wonder if this story, especially in the larger context of Acts, is about the conversion of the church, not just the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, because all conversions are mutual. I mean, I'm converted to you and you're converted to me. And the Ethiopian eunuch was the first Gentile convert in the church. I mean, he paves the way for all Gentiles in the church, which is many of us who are watching here today. (laughs) We're all here. You know, I'm here (laughs) in part because of him. Jack Rogers, he writes that the fact that the first Gentile convert to Christianity is from a sexual minority, a different race, ethnicity, and nationality, it calls Christians to be radically inclusive and welcoming. Salthouse, that is good news for all people. And man, and I'm going to claim it, that is evangelical. So it's my prayer, Holy Spirit that you, O wild goose, that you would call us into unknown places to meet unlikely friends, to listen with our whole hearts, our whole beings, and to draw connections of solidarity, to say yes, to say yes. Yes, (laughs) and find ourselves converted in it. Jesus, you are good news for all people. You're good news for all creation. To that we say amen.